Hello, I'm Nim, and you're listening to A Spoonful of Medicine, topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. On today's episode, we're looking at autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, or ADPKD. It is generally a late-onset multi-system disorder characterized by bilateral kidney cysts, liver cysts, and an increased risk of intracranial aneurysms. Now, you may have heard about it when doing a renal term or when you've been studying genetics. PKD has a tendency to pop up in a few areas of paediatrics, so it's a condition really worth knowing about. So, join me this episode as we learn all about ADPKD. Let's go! Before we get into it all, this episode will be part one of two. Next week's episode, we'll look at autosomal recessive PKD because really it's good to have an understanding of both these conditions because often in paediatrics, you're asked about both of them, how they present and how they compare and contrast. So listen on now and be sure to listen in to next week's episode as well. All right, let's get back to it. Autosomal dominant PKD is the most common hereditary kidney disease there is. Its incidence is about 1 in 400 to 1 in 1,000 people. 90% of those with autosomal dominant PKD have a family history, meaning 10% of cases are due to de novo mutations. Now, affected individuals typically don't develop symptomatic disease until adulthood, but not uncommonly, asymptomatic children may be identified while undergoing abdominal imaging or screening due to a family history of ADPKD or even found incidentally for an unrelated issue. Nonetheless, a small percentage of people with autosomal dominant PKD can present in infancy and childhood with early onset and rapidly progressive disease. So although it's a primarily adult-based disorder, children can still present with autosomal dominant PKD or be detected to have ADPKD. And so it's important for those of us dealing with children to know about the disorder in order to treat them as well as counsel families about the implications. The genetics of ADPKD is something that people love to ask about on exams and quiz you about. So let's have a look at it. Genetically speaking, there's two genes that are responsible for ADPKD, and they are PKD1 and PKD2. PKD1 is on chromosome 16 and is responsible for 75% of cases. PKD2 is found on chromosome 4, and that is responsible for 15% of cases. PKD1 and PKD2 encode distinct proteins named PC1 and PC2 respectively, and these are localised to the primary cilia of the renal epithelial cells, which are involved with intracellular calcium signalling and activation of cyclic AMP. The way in which mutations in the PKD gene causes pathology follows the two-hit hypothesis. This is where affected individuals inherit one defective copy of the gene. That is the first hit. They then acquire a mutation in their good copy during their lifetime, and that is a second hit. Once they have two hits, clinical expression of the disease is shown in the form here of polycystic kidneys. So that's how you get polycystic kidney disease, well, autosomal dominant form anyway, But how is it inherited? 
Well, clinically, it is an autosomal dominant condition, meaning if a parent is affected, there's a 50-50% chance that their child will be too. Now, one last thing before we start looking into the clinical presentation of ADPKD. I want to briefly mention what the system selves look like because they are different to what the autosomal recessive type presents with. The cystic dilations seen in ADPKD are in all parts of the nephron, including the Bowman space and all tubular segments. This is different from autosomal recessive PKD, which is characterized by fusiform dilations mainly of the collecting ducts. Early on in the disease, there are a few macrocysts which are bigger than one centimeter large and they're irregularly distributed. This contrasts with ARPKD in which the cysts are less than one centimeter big. Later on in ADPKD, both kidneys become enlarged due to many macrocysts in the cortex and the medulla, and that gives a characteristic look of ADPKD kidneys that are big, bulky, and cystic. Now that we have all that pathology out of the way, let's have a look at the clinical stuff. In terms of an age of onset, ADPKD typically presents in adulthood or the fourth decade of life. A few, about 2-5%, to 5%, can present with early onset and rapidly progressive kidney disease during childhood, and the exact reason why these people present earlier remains unclear. Rarely, and I'm talking case reports, severe ADPKD can present in the neonatal period with similar findings to those of ARPKD. But for our study purposes, typically ADPKD is a disease of adulthood that may be detected, in some cases, the minority in childhood. So knowing all that, how does a child with ADPKD present? Most pediatric patients are asymptomatic and they often stay asymptomatic until the fourth decade. These people are often identified by ultrasound detection of renal cysts because of either a positive family history or these cysts are found incidentally when noted on an ultrasound that is performed for an unrelated clinical condition. Nonetheless, this is the most common way ADPKD is detected in childhood. In the minority of cases that are symptomatic in childhood, these children can present with similar concepts and presentation to adults, and this includes hypertension, gross or microscopic hematuria, proteinuria, renal concentrating defects, and that can present like polyuria and polydipsia. Children can have urinary tract or cyst infections, and so infection type symptoms are the predominant feature here. They can get abdominal pain, back pain, uncommonly urolithiasis, and very rarely a decrease in their GFR. Knowing the extra renal manifestations of ADPKD is really important for a few reasons. One, it enables us to counsel families about what to expect within this condition and diagnosis. And secondly, a bit selfishly, it's something that examiners love to ask. So let's have a look at what other manifestations ADPKD individuals can have. Other organs that are affected can have cysts in them as well, and these are common in adults, about 58% by the age of 25, but extra renal cysts in kids are uncommon. 
Organs that may be affected include hepatic cysts, pancreatic cysts, and even seminal vesicle cysts. Another extrarenal manifestation are colonic diverticula, as well as cardiac abnormalities, including mitral valve prolapse that may be seen in up to 12% of cases, as well as aortic regurgitation. The big extrarenal manifestation to remember, however, are cerebral vessel malformations, specifically circle of Willis berry aneurysms. These can occur in 5 to 20% of cases, and there's a high risk if there's a family history of the same. Now, rupture of these aneurysms in childhood is quite rare, and thus the screening is not indicated or recommended in kids. However, once they reach adulthood, screening is recommended, and there are adult-based guidelines about who to test and how often. Okay. So now, how do we go about diagnosing someone with autosomal dominant PKD? In children, the diagnosis of ADPKD is typically established by a positive family history and then confirmed by ultrasonography by the detection of one or more large cysts. Approximately 95% of affected individuals show ultrasound evidence of cysts in their kidneys by 20 years of age and almost 100% by 30 years. However, the reported rate of false negatives is about 40% in kids less than 5 years of age. And so, repeat imaging is necessary in younger children with a positive family history and an initial negative study. Nonetheless, ultrasound-based criteria in patients older than 15 years of age have been established and can help exclude the ADPKD in children this age with a positive family history. Scans using CTs or MRIs while being more sensitive for detecting renal cysts are also more expensive with known associated risks such as radiation as well as the need of sedation in kids. And as a result, ultrasound remains the preferred initial diagnostic modality because it is non-invasive, you don't have to sedate a child and it's quite inexpensive. Less commonly, you may see a child with cysts suggestive of ADPKD, but they have no family history. In these children, renal ultrasounds should be performed on the parents, and a diagnosis of ADPKD is made if renal cysts are detected in either parent. In families where the parents are young, i.e. they themselves are below 30 years of age, ultrasound evaluation of the grandparents may be needed to establish the diagnosis. If the workup of the parents or grandparents doesn't reveal any cystic kidney disease and ADPKD still is a strong possibility, remember about 10% of cases are de novo, Genetic testing is suggested and you should probably ask your local friendly renal team and genetics team to be involved. While we're mentioning genetics, it's important to know that genetic testing, which is costly, is also generally not necessary and is often reserved in very specific clinical situations as directed by the specialist teams. This means that genetics and the diagnosis of most ADPKD cases is not necessary. Let's finish off with the management and prognosis of those with ADPKD. Screening of children with a positive family history but are asymptomatic is controversial. 
Now, the pros are there's an opportunity for maximal anticipatory care like blood pressure control, benefits of future therapies, etc. However, the cons of screening have implications on this child's autonomy, on their potential career, on their education, their emotions, as well as their insurability. So ultrasound is the preferred modality, but to screen or not to screen really is a big discussion for the family. And if the child has some autonomy or is old enough to understand, it's really important to get them involved too. Once diagnosed, there's no specific agent or treatment that is recommended to slow the progression of renal disease in kids. And if children go on to develop end-stage renal kidney disease in childhood and indeed early adulthood, living-related kidney transplantation is the preferred intervention. There's no data on disease-specific therapies, specifically tolvaptan, which is a vasopressant agonist in children. There are some adult trials that show that tolvaptan slows down progression of renal disease in patients with high-risk end-stage kidney disease. However, this medication is not recommended in kids. Largely, the management of ADPKD in kids is supportive. This includes rigorous blood pressure control. Blood pressure should be monitored regularly and be aimed to be less than the 50th centile for their age. ACE inhibitors are the first line in blood pressure management. It's also really important to monitor for proteinuria and decrease this as much as possible. So children should get protein-creatinine ratios on annually. And ACE inhibitors here are also first-line therapies. In terms of dietary measures, it's recommended that children have no excess salt intake because this helps decrease the rate of renal function decline. It's also recommended that children have good fluid intake and this suppresses endogenous vasopressin production that is postulated to inhibit cyst growth in ADPKD. However, the data around this is inconclusive. Nonetheless, it's important that children are well hydrated to avoid hypovolemia. Importantly, children here are not placed on protein restriction because there's no evidence that protein restriction decreases the rate of renal function decline in ADPKD in kids. Anticipatory guidance is also really important in kids and families to avoid and manage complications of ADPKD. And this includes abdominal pain, UTIs, and avoidance of trauma and contact sports. In terms of the prognosis of those with ADPKD, they're likely to have preserved renal function until the fourth decade of life. So really, it's our adult renal colleagues that we're managing these in bulk. Nonetheless, it's important to know that about 50% of those with ADPKD will have end-stage renal disease by the age of 60. So in many cases, renal damage and progressive renal decline is inevitable. And with that, it's time for a recap. ADPKD or autosomal dominant PKD is a dominant inherited disorder caused by mutations of either the PKD1 or PKD2 genes. It's the most common hereditary renal disorder. Kidney involvement is characterized by cystic dilations in all parts of the nephron, including the Bowman space, as well as all the parts of the tubule. Cysts in the liver and pancreas are common in adults with ADPKD, but are seen far less frequently in kids. 
most patients with ADPKD present in adulthood. However, a small percentage of patients with early onset ADPKD can present with progressive renal disease during childhood. Most pediatric patients with ADPKD are asymptomatic and identified with detection of renal cysts by ultrasound because of a positive family history or cysts that are found incidentally when imaging for other reasons. Although most pediatric patients with ADPKD are asymptomatic, those who present in childhood have similar renal manifestations to those seen in adulthood. These include hypertension, hematuria, proteinuria, UTIs, abdominal pain, and back pain. The diagnosis of ADPKD is typically established by a positive family history and a kidney ultrasound which reveals cysts. However, ultrasonography is not a sensitive diagnostic test for ADPKD in kids compared with adults, and there are risks of false negative results, and so repeat imaging may be necessary to make a diagnosis in younger kids with a positive family history and initial negative ultrasound. In children, screening for ADPKD is controversial and really it should have a big discussion with the children as well as the adults about the benefits and risks. The diagnosis of ADPKD is straightforward in children with a positive family history. If there's no family history, then consultation with renal teams as well as genetic teams is indicated in order to make a diagnosis. Management of ADPKD in children largely surrounds the maintenance of good renal health. And this includes rigorous blood pressure control, limiting proteinuria, having no excess salt in your diet, making sure you stay hydrated. And in kids, a low protein diet is not recommended. Likely, these children will have preserved renal function until they hit the fourth decade of life and our adult colleagues will be their primary physicians. 50% of cases will have end-stage renal disease by 60 years of age, which means that these children and families need to be comprehensively counselled about the implications of the diagnosis. That's been this week's episode of A Spoonful of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. For the visual learners of us out there, head over to our Instagram page at spoonful.of.medicine for a quick summary of today's episode, along with some other great educational content. If you'd like to get in touch, have a suggestion for a future episode, or have heard something that you think needs a correction, please email us on spoonfulofmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. It's been a pleasure chopping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. I can't wait for you to join us on our next episode. But until then, bye.